This is the Dive Bomb Squadcast, presented by Dive Bomb Industries. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Dive Bomb Squadcast. I'm your host, Asher Tolliver. As we make our way through the heart of the spring, I hope you all are doing well and spending plenty of time in the great outdoors. We all love shooting bands, but not everyone understands the significance of the information gathered from those little pieces of aluminum. Today, I am joined on the phone by Dr. Douglas Osborne, Associate Professor of Wildlife Management at the University of Arkansas, Monticello, and we are going to talk waterfowl science. Dr. Doug, thanks for joining me today, man. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, glad to be here. Yes, sir. Absolutely. What are you guys... Uh, what are you guys up to this time of year there in Monticello? Yeah, well, we're winding down from field season. Uh, banding operations uh, finished up there in uh, late February, early March after the ice we got cleaned up. We got a gear stuffed away for the year. Uh, we're managing data, organizing, compiling, double checking, uh, getting getting these data submitted uh, to the bird banding laboratory which it's all housed uh, in major databases in the federal government. And so, you know, we caught 4,500 ducks or so this year uh, over a couple of week period. And uh, so just, you know, data quality checking and, uh, and getting that stuff submitted. So when folks start catching the birds this summer in the breeding grounds or we start, you know, harvesting early next fall again, you know, all that data is submitted and, and ready for, folks to receive their, you know, certificate for, for harvesting the banded birds. So 4,500 birds. That's a heck of a run, man. I know you guys said that you had set out for a, a goal of 5,000 and you were certainly on pace to do that. And wildly enough, Arkansas, we have this crazy storm that comes through and I know that sets you guys back a little bit, but 4,500 birds, that's nothing to sneeze at. What is the most that your program has ever done? Uh, this was our second best year on mallards. We actually had a target of 5,000 mallards and we caught 3,500 mallards. And then the other thousand birds we caught were, um, uh, teal and widgeon. And we got various projects going on that were targeting some of those other, other species. So 3,500 mallards, 45 or 4,700 birds in total this year. Um, and uh, and again, like I said, this was our second best year for mallards. We were we were really on pace for 5,000 mallards this February, uh, but we caught 3,500 mallards in basically 12 days of trapping. Um, wow. We we had them lined up. We had them on lots of properties, uh, and essentially the ice helped us in in one one manner because we had a late migration again this year. Uh, they all showed up just before the ice, uh, but then you know, the, the capture was short lived right around that ice event. So we got shut down quickly. Um, and we just never really could pick up steam again after that. It warmed up so quick after that, that, you know, that the spring migration pretty much started relatively quickly after banding. And, and the other concern I had was, um, was chasing those birds around after ice out because their body condition was, they were, they were losing 35 to 45% of their body mass uh, wow. through the ice. Um, and uh, it was really hard on them, uh, the birds. And so we, we did, we fed them a good bit after that ice, but we took a little bit of a time afterwards to not get a hurry to get on them and chase right, them around. Right. We were concerned about the, 
the health of their, you know, the health of them essentially. Sure. Do you have any idea what percentage of these birds that you guys banned get harvested in that first year? I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, direct harvest rates are ones that we put out this February. We can estimate that really easily. Uh, and then how many get harvested that next hunting season? It's, you know, it's pretty much on average, uh, you know, eight, eight, eight or so percent. Okay. Uh, it's, it's pretty close to what, you know, uh, overall what they find in the banning program for breeding season birds. I think there's some anomalies in our birds that we're catching because we're catching ones that made it through the hunting season. We're right. catching ones that are on traditional wintering grounds uh, that that likely that may come here early, right? And so we got all these mobs of birds, I call them, mm -hmm. these little meta populations of birds that are early migrants. They know where they're going to winter, and they skip all the hunt. You know, they skip all the, you know, the mid continents, the mid latitude states. They uh, and they and they come to Arkansas early. You know, early November. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I and I just think they're. They're older birds. They're just, they've been coming here for a while. It's these sort of groups that's, that knows how to survive. And, and so then you got this other mass of birds that, you know, it's the new breeders uh, from last year. They're, they're offspring, young birds. And that's that sort of big mass that we just, that we think is kind of shifting north. Uh, they're just making it down enough. So there's, there's all these little sort of groups of birds that we're starting to, kind of pick apart from information from banding data and uh, on the migration and then and then information from transmitters so i think our harvest rate is is probably uh you know roughly around eight percent or so i you know we hadn't calculated that yet um uh really and uh and so i i need to um i've been looking for some a student a master student to do this project for a couple of years but it's very heavily quantitative and you got to have a sort of a population ecology mindset and, and thinking. So I'm just looking for the right student. Uh, and when they come along, we'll start digging into some of that. Doc, can you take us back in time and tell us a little bit about your background and what drew you toward wildlife management? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I grew up in central Illinois in the corn desert, uh, grew up, you know, running ditch lines, chasing pheasants and CRP fields and hunting the Mississippi River. Uh, I grew up, I actually grew up hunting diving ducks on the uh, Mississippi River up around, uh, you know, the Quad Cities, Moline, Illinois, uh, hunting, you know, s sitting six feet up off on top of the water, shooting down at, you know, divers as they buzz through late winter. And so that, you know, that's, that was sort of my childhood growing up and just, you know, people my life influence and on my influence on hunting and passion for it you know that's what that really what drove me to where you know where i was i had never really had an intention to get uh, you know to be a college professor i knew i wanted to do research but you know just kind of took the path in life and land, landed me here and uh you know it's been good it's it's been good relationships with students here and and i've really found a love and passion for you know for the students and the people uh, I, I mean, really, I went into wildlife management because I didn't like people. And now my passion is people, you know, like I love the volunteers to come out. I love the, you know, to work with you all in the field and then just training those next, you know, those next students that are going to go into our field. And, you know, when they call and say we got jobs with, you know, this organization or that agency, you know, that stuff's really what fuels my fire. And so that 
I always tell my students when they come in, I said, you got a gut, you got a fire in your belly for waterfowl. If you don't, this might not be the right spot yeah. for you. And so that fire in my belly comes from them, you know, getting these jobs in the field. And so, definitely, you know, that's where I came from. And, and that's kind of what my passion lies now. No, I, I can totally see it because I think I might've texted you that evening. I was driving home and I was extremely impressed with, the group of people that you had out there, I could just see their, their passion, their excitement toward what they were doing. You know, it was kind of rainy. It was kind of, kind of cold and man, they were just so fired up. They were so excited. They were so passionate. And, um, so I can definitely see where that comes from. I was, I was very impressed by that. The group of people you had out there, we had a great time. You know, when, when most people think of waterfowl banding, they think of birds being captured on their northern prairie breeding grounds. However, your crew is banding wintering mallards in the timber rice country of the Delta. When did this project begin? And ultimately, you know, I know you've got a lot of things going in a lot of different directions, but as it started, what, what were the main goals of your winter banding project? Gotcha. Yeah, let me, let me stick back and address uh, the, the breeding season stuff. Traditionally, that's where it occurs. You know, we were marking birds on the breeding grounds when they can't fly and they're catching young birds and, and breeding pairs and that sort of thing in these traps. And and that data is really what's what drives our harvest management decisions. That drives the adaptive harvest management strategies that's used by the federal government to you know, to set harvest regulations. So that really is the information that drives our population models and all that sort of thing. So it's essential, uh, that breeding season, uh, that preseason banding uh, information. Uh, historically, back in the 1960s, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service started banding uh, a little bit on the wintering grounds, thinking, you know, just, I think, exploratory, really. Uh, you know, what, you know, we got birds in heavy concentrations here. We can learn different things about birds that are banding on the wintering grounds and the breeding grounds. So it was this exploratory avenue that they took to start to, to ban birds down here for various things. You know, and they started finding that, you know, there's lots of biases in these data, and we know that. And there's some uncertainties in it that we have to sort of make some assumptions about and those kind of things. And we're, we're starting to work through some of that. But the idea behind the start of my project was back in the 60s there was about six or eight years in a row where they banded three four thousand five thousand mallards a year mm-hmm. and then there was sort of a low in the in the 70s and eight and and then like in the late eight 1980s there was another you know five six year period where they where they banded three or four thousand mallards a year down here as well and then there was a big gap again and then when i come to arkansas in uh, july of 2012 i thought you know, I had an opportunity to 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 rethink some of the historical winter abandoning projects that occurred and the information that they got out of that. And now the knowledge that we can sort of that we can sort of gain by going ahead and picking up that banding again and compare some of the patterns that we see nowadays compared to the patterns that we've seen back in the 1960s. Can we see a change in those behaviors of birds or the distribution or the timing of migration, those various things. Okay. So that's really the, the goal of my, my project was, it was research uh, driven. And the goal was really to compare 
the timing of migration of, of how those bands start popping up on the landscape. If you think about just looking at a map of the U.S., and as all those states, the hunting season pops in, you know, starts, the start of hunting season comes in, you can just start seeing all these dots appear on a map, right. which are bands that are being harvested by various lucky hunters. Okay, so if you start comparing the timing of when they're in the latitude and, lo, you know, longitude in which these things are popping up on the map, just spatially, we can start to think about how some of these patterns might have changed over the years. And we know there's lots more factors sure. influencing hunting now than it did before. And those are some of the uncertainties in the data that we have to work through. <clears throat> but the beauty of it is that the banding program is one of the longest lasting sort of long-term data sets we have. And to start to look at those patterns in distribution, the patterns in migration, you know, even patterns in harvest rate and survival rate and all that stuff that we can get from band data. It's just interesting to compare what we see now back to the 1960s. And so we just we just don't really have all that many data sets. It's important that we keep those data sets running. And, you know, there's there's only a few sort of long term data sets that we can start to look at patterns and distribution and migration and how they change through time. We know there's biases, but. There's just not that many data sets available and banding is one of them. Uh, and so one of the benefits of the, uh, you know, this project really is to look at, you know, how, how, what kind of changes we can see from the sixties and eighties to now, you know, and then lastly, what I'll say is, you know, we just, we can't use some of the current technology like satellite transmitter data to look at change through time because we just didn't have that in the sixties, you know? And so, you know, so that's some of the limitations to how we answer the questions of what what's happened some from when our grandparents were were hunting ducks to now you know and so that's that's where this band data can give us an insight on some of that sometimes you'll hear people say oh they don't they don't band ducks like they used to that's why old timers they have so many bands is there any truth to that well there's there's a lot of truth to that there yeah is. um in the 90s uh i was i was actually looking at this information the other day um in the 90s there was um excuse me i'm actually digging for that graph right here um so band uh deployment in the prairies peaked around between like 1990 and about sort of 2000 it started going down where they were banned in 25,000 mallards wow. a year you know across just saskatchewan alone uh in the 90s and so if you look at the data now uh in 2015 the data on this graph i'm looking at they were only being in 5,000 mallards a year in saskatchewan right? and so it significantly fell off i mean part of it is is funding uh right. you know and that that uh banding preseason banding is funded by federal government it's funded by all the state governments it's funded by uh canadian wildlife service and so mm -hmm. collectively as natural resource organizations are all combining money to to make these things happen okay. um but but what we see you know the the consequences of of changing distributions everybody's talking about how that's happening on the wintering ground what happened on the breeding ground too mm -hmm. you know back in 1960 the federal you know we said oh we got to build all these permanent banding stations so we can come back here and band ducks every year with the banding crew in perpetuity. We gotta build these permanent mm -hmm. stations. Well, they build them right in the smack dab middle of where all the mallards you know, were breeding. Mm -hmm. And just 
huge number of birds and opportunity to catch them was really easy and they were catching large numbers. Um, but just like we talk about shifting winter distributions, the birds on the breeding ground shift. Right. You know, we get we get CRP that a bunch of it gets tilled under. We lose wetlands. We drain wetlands. Habitat quality changes. Patterns in rainfall and precipitation and uh, change to where the prairies are dry in some areas and wet in others. And so the birds have to be adaptive. Right. The birds are adapting on the breeding ground. They go up there and they're like, oh, man, this year it's going to be it's pretty dry up there right now. They show up this year and they're like, whoa, that wetland had water in it last year. And I, I, I had a clutch here, but now it doesn't. So I got to go somewhere else. All right. And so when the, when the habitat conditions on the breeding ground shift, the birds have to shift. Mm-hmm. So now the locations where they used to catch 90% mallards, they're catching 90% blue wing teal because the mallard shifted. But remember, the federal, you know, they when they built when they built these banding stations, they built these permanent stations, and and they can't move the station real easy, so they continue to band where they're banding, and so they're getting very good trend data on the, you know, on that banding. But unfortunately, you know, for 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 what we need from Allard's information, the you know they're just not catching as many now uh, as they as they used to, and the, and the effort is still there. Um, in a lot of cases, uh, some of the federal funding has been chipped away. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not sure the dynamics of what stations are active still and if there's some that are not active. But, mm-hmm. you know, this graph is I'm looking at. I got Manitoba, Alberta, Saskatchewan, you know, banding upwards of, you know, 25,000 just in Saskatchewan and another wow. 15. So there's 40 thousand mallards a year being banded up there in the prairies back in the 90s no wonder people were harvesting six six mallard bands a year uh, in the 1990s you know and now it's clear down to five you know five thousand birds a year across some of these provinces okay and that's not even the ones in you know north dakota bans a lot of birds and and all that as well but that's just sort of a gross i just a sort of a visual of what's happened and so Band band numbers have really fallen off, fell off over the years. Yeah, that's interesting, man. I would have never thought it was it was that much. You know, that's that's pretty crazy. The um, you know, the research that you guys are doing, it's it's so cool. We I've wanted to get involved with something like that forever, just to even see it. If you guys haven't watched the YouTube video we made banding birds with dr osborne and his crew in late february you need to go check it out it was so awesome it gives a really in-depth look at how this process takes place and how much work goes into this research it's a lot more than just a little aluminum ring that goes on your lanyard kate and i we had an absolute blast with you guys that evening that was such a cool experience i know the guys on the you know the prairie i'm sure it's all cool um for what it's worth and all the banding but doing it in the woods that's pretty neat that's that's different it's unique you know mm-hmm. a lot of people they don't they don't get to experience <laughs> stuff like that you know hunting in the woods that's kind of a a bucket list type of deal people the the thought of a mallard duck coming in through the trees is pretty cool and for you guys to get to band them in the woods like that is that's you know it's pretty awesome you guys were definitely fired up about it i think that first trap we had like 50 60 birds in there maybe and then the 
mm-hmm. and then the second one maybe maybe 25 or 30 and all in all we got to almost 100 birds mm-hmm. that night so that was really cool yep. man yeah that's two little traps that are you know what eight foot around and and uh you know just i mean it's just a small little space in the world that you know in two small traps we had almost 100 birds and in, in a night that got in there during the daytime we check them every day they just we don't want to leave you know we don't leave birds in the traps very long so but anyway you're, you're right i mean the you know the woods is just historically important wintering areas for these birds um you know uh and it's unfortunate some of the issues that we're dealing with 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 uh you know the the quality of the timber uh in the in the change in the structure and the compositional sort of diversity in the woods you know we're really you know for for some that may not be super familiar we're you know the the composition of the trees that are in the woods is shifting we're losing a lot of the small uh, the red oak species that create these really small acorns uh and it's the small acorns that wood ducks and mallards uh you know feed on in the woods and so because of altered hydrology through time and 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 probably climate change as well having some impact on uh on the growing cycle of these trees uh you know the wetland condition the the i guess this i guess the yeah i guess the condition of the wetlands is is altered to the point where it's not really desirable for some of these species anymore and and in some cases where we got extensive flooding, you know, we're losing a lot of these red oak trees and, and they're really important in the system overall. They're important to the wetland, but they're also important to the waterfowl. So, you know, we, we, we really got some conservation challenges ahead of us in terms of trying to figure out the health of these timbers because it's super fragmented now compared to, you know, historical. We've lost a lot of those. It's been cleared to agriculture. And so the change in the, in the land use practices over time, and now the, the change in the quality of the timber is impacting overall sort of habitat quality of, for waterfowl down here. Right. It's really also probably one of the driving driving factors to some of the you know observations that we've that we've made on changing distributions, uh, you know, uh, and behavior. So, you know, that's one of many uh, things. You know, we you mentioned climate change earlier. You know, I mean, we know that there's the, the patterns are changing. You know, I don't call it global warming. I call it climate change because they are changing. Mm-hmm. The patterns of rainfall changing, the patterns of snowfall, the temperatures. I mean, just various things are changing. It's impacting the, the, you know, the whole, the entire system from the plant, you know, the herbaceous plants all the way to the birds and what, and the timing of how they migrate. And so various things are impacting this thing you talked about earlier. There's lots of things that are impacting, you know, behaviors of ducks. The migration itself is really driven by climate. I got some a good friend of mine at, uh, out in New York that does a lot of a lot of his research with migration and climate. Uh, he's got lots of good papers, Mike Schumer, uh, on the impacts of some of that. And I, and I mean, we sort of in Arkansas this year, we observed it sort of firsthand. I mean, we had a hundred year storm here. I mean, there's people here that said they've never seen ice like that here. Like this is not. This isn't even two-inch ice country, and we had seven-inch ice in some places. Right. Um, and so you're talking about the woods that only got, you know, 10, 12, maybe 14, 16 inches of water in it already, and half of it's frozen. Right. 
and it takes a long time to thaw because of the sunshine getting in there and everything else, uh, you know, to thaw that out. And so, and then on top of that, we had, you know, 10 inches of snow. And so my observation is that birds can live on the ice, you know, as long as they can go to dry fields and feed and find places to eat, they're going to survive those, you know, those fronts, you know? So when we have, you know, I was growing up in a kid in Illinois, in Illinois, I remember ice fishing every year and, and I'm, my dad's making me hand drill these friggin' these ice holes, you know? I mean, I was doing that and I'm, I remember how thick is this stinking ice? Right. I mean, once ice hit you, I mean, you're fishing the rest of the winter. Uh, and now if you get two or three days of ice thick enough to even walk on up there, you better go because it ain't going to last long. Right. You know, so the patterns in the ice have changed through time. It's just, it just doesn't stick around as long. And of course, snowfall. So if you get ice and snowfall cover completely covering all the food, birds have to leave. But they can sleep on the ice and then go feed in the dry fields during the day, you know, and find food up there and they don't have to migrate. We've seen it firsthand here because we had a huge storm and uh, and it it killed a lot of birds. I'm just going to tell you, there was a lot of waterfowl that were dead uh, this year uh, from that. And all the birds that we started catching after that ice storm, you could tell the body condition was poor. And we've been measuring body condition of live birds for a couple of years now. And so we have some metrics on that. And we got some analysis still to run. But I'm, you know, I'm willing to say that some of these birds lost up to 35, 40% of their body mass from that, you know, seven days of snow cover and ice that they couldn't barely live. They're the ones that actually did live. And so it was a big storm. And so if we think about things that impact migration, you know, these birds can live on the ice, but they can't feed when the ice, when the water's covered and the ground's covered, they got to move. And so that's a real big, you know, obviously a big impact on, you know, on when they migrate. Why would, what would cause a bird when a storm like that is coming to not hightail it south, but to ride that thing out? I, I know, I know. They're they're just they got to have some sort of inert feelings, you know. They just got to have some some sense to them to to realize maybe it won't last that long. I you know I don't know, or maybe they can maybe they got enough energy built up, you know, for a few days, and if it's still covered and all that, then they need to leave. But right. you know, at some point, you know, when you you know, it's it's a balancing act for these birds in terms of how much energy they got stored in their body, how much extra fat do they got there for those days that they can't find food, they can just burn their body fat. All right. And then the balance between uh, saving energy, you know, and migrating and then, and then, you know, conserving energy. So when is it, it's very costly to migrate and fly. And so if I only got a little bit of energy left, I might spend all of it trying to migrate and I don't know where I'm going to end up. Mm-hmm. where there's no ice and maybe it's just better to hunker down and conserve right. the energy you have gotcha. and wait it out and so i don't know the decisions that are made there in terms of uh, birds and migration but they're you know they're they're interesting decisions uh that, that waterfowl have to make for sure Definitely. and so but you think about this like southern arkansas i mean you can't go all that much further south right. i mean you, you know uh, I mean, they got ice and stuff in Louisiana too. And so, you know, I got, I got calls from people in Oxford, Mississippi saying there are 
there are 10,000 mallards in this field. I've never seen a mallard duck in this field in my life. I said, wow. they're starving to death. I mean, they got, you know, they got a lot of birds down there because the ones that we had had, you know, a bunch of them had to leave. The one, you know, some of them stuck it out and tried to sit in, in the river. You know, some of the parts of the river stayed open. Some of them stayed and stuck it out. Some of them left. And it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it should be interesting, interesting. to see. Definitely. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I just, I just wonder, I'm a little mm-hmm. concerned of the confounding issue or the confounding impact that may have on population numbers and fall flight next year, because mm-hmm. from what I understand right now, the prairies are dry. And so we got to, we, you know, we harvest birds, then all the ones that are supposed to live through the hunting season, a bunch of them died from the ice and then they went back in poor body condition. Hopefully some of them are, you know, healthy enough to reproduce uh, some of those females. Uh, And then when they get up there, hopefully they can find somewhere to reproduce because everything's dry. And so all those factors confounding on top of one another and dry prairies already is, we know one of the biggest impacts on you know that has on on fall flight index next year and so i don't know i'm just i'm a little concerned Mm -hmm. uh of all those sort of events sort of building up this year and and what what it may do to fall flight numbers next year yeah when you break it down like that it it certainly becomes concerning doc what's the highest number of birds that you've ever seen in one of your traps oh uh it's over 100 it's got to be i bet you around 120 wow. or so i think we caught 120 birds in there one day and if you, you know uh it's incredible that they get in there that dense if you i mean you put 120 birds inside of that trap and they're all sitting flat on the water like a dabbling duck does and they're all sitting right next to each other and they're all sitting there nice and calm there's no room for 120 ducks <laughs> like there's just not enough surface area inside of there so it's I mean, these things are getting piled in there. You know, they're all piling on top of each other and fighting for that bait. And that's, you know, that's just what it boils down to. And then, and when you, and you go up to check the trap and they all go to the side, it don't really look like you got all that money. Right. And it looks like there's room for much, much more, but it really just isn't the case. And so, you know, that's why we, you know, we, these birds get in the trap during the daytime. You know, we set them at, we set them at night in the dark. The reason it works for us in the woods is because, the birds for the most part leave the woods at night and then go to roost somewhere and we can go into the woods after they leave and not disturb them. Okay. Uh, and we, you know, and so then they come back in the morning, right. And they start getting in there, trickle in there during the morning and, and pretty much all day long. And then we're right at dark, you know, when you all were there, we were just certain sitting there waiting for the sun to go down and sort of right at dark when all the birds start coming out of the woods you know, the ones we didn't catch in that trap, there's still a bunch more around that. So if we don't spook them away, you know, we'll be able to catch them the next Shot. day. So we wait for them to leave and then we go in and empty our traps out. So we just, you know, we don't leave them in there, uh, but during the daytime and, uh, you know, there's never any issues with predators uh, for us during the day, um, you know. Uh, and so that's why we, we always make sure that we're real timely at getting there at night so that we don't have any sort of run arounds with any kind of predator that might be hungry so what's the coolest bird that you guys have ever had in one of your catch sites yeah Ooh. <laughs> man our, our crew has had so much fun over this i mean you you've seen it when you were there we're just i mean i've thought this for 
I don't know how many years. I, I mean, I've abandoned my first bird in like 2005 or four, something like that. You know, or no, actually in 2002 was my first really working band. And I'm still to this day, it still eats me up. I just, it just love being out there and doing it. It's just, you know, something uh, we're real passionate about, but, uh, but we've caught a few hybrids over the years and we've had, we got, you know, quite a few hybrids on camera that, you know, that we were trying to target and catch mm-hmm. some nice, really pretty pintail mallard crosses right in front of our camera. Uh, and, uh, and we did catch one, one year. He was, uh, I think probably a juvenile or something. He wasn't all full blown, uh geared up like some of them are but but we caught a really neat mallard wood duck hybrid one wow. year the thing was small like a wood duck it had the wet the wing patterns and the breast pattern of, of a mallard it had wood duck colored legs it had uh it had a green head like a mallard drake but the but the bill the was bill. <laughs> was a wood duck bill it was wow. it's the neatest thinking thing if y'all get on to the students, onto the, the Instagram page that our students have uh, and cruise down to the bottom, there's a, there's a bunch of pictures of him on, on our Instagram thing. But it's, he was really, really neat. How and then, the uh, does been, a pairing like that even happen? <laughs> I have no idea, but it is one of the coolest birds. And, and he, he literally was the size of a, of a wood duck. He was a small bird, and it was – he was he – was, like that's just it. Just is like an unreal. If deal. you were guessing, uh, would you and, think the mother was was a wood duck and the the dad was a, a mm-hmm. mallard? I mean, is there any way to even know? Uh, geneticists will probably tell you how that could potentially work. My friend Phil in in uh, El Paso, Texas, could probably tell us how that could potentially work, but I'm not sure. I'm you know I'm, I'm not sure the 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 deal there. I wouldn't even. <laughs> just blows they even my throw mind, out man. there, I guess. Cause, uh, but yeah, you ought to check that out if you haven't seen it. It's a neat, it's the neatest stinking bird. And they caught a pretty cool bird a year or two back uh, up around Augusta, um, Pumpkin Bend in Arkansas um, on Straight Lakes. Uh, they caught a um, bird. It had, it had widgeon. Uh, I forgot what it was ultimately classified at. To be honest, um, we sent that around. We, had a, a genetic sample we sent around and I can't remember what the final determination on that identification was, but it was definitely widget and something else. And that picture should be uh, on that, on that page too, as well. But that was, it was a, another odd, very unique, interesting bird um, that we caught there that year. So that was fun. Definitely but, um, got the, Pintail mallard, pintailards, and snow bellies, and cinnamon blues, and do you think mm-hmm. we're you think we're just seeing more hybrids because of popularity and exposure on social media? In your professional opinion, is there more crossbreeding taking place? No, I think it's just access to information. Okay. Probably, I, you know, I'm no expert in this field for sure, but I, you know, I I don't think it's that we're seeing much more of it happening. Uh, I just think it's, I think, like you said, it's just Ability. access to information. You're, you're seeing it on media and it just seems like there's so much more you know, happening. As, but. as cool as they are to harvest, I'm, I, I could be wrong, but I've heard that when two different species made it typically re- results in infertile offspring. Um, I don't know mm-hmm. how much truth there is to that, but mm-hmm. you know, maybe the idea behind it is not so cool when it comes to 
long-term waterfowl populations. Yeah, that's the whole, and I don't know, I'm going to tell you, I don't know either, but that's the whole, I mean, we all took like genetics and like whatever year in school, remember, and they told you the F1 and F2 and generation and this and that. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not very informed on that that sort of stuff right now, but but that's as far as I understand as as well that that's true that offspring aren't reproducing that you know you know something uh, I saw one time it was so cool these researchers they were banning king eiders before they even hatched I guess with them inhabiting such hard to reach portions of our globe and spending months at a time at the sea these researchers will ban them at the end of the incubation period when the chick begins to break through the shell they'll use these tweezers they'll gently punch a hole in the egg and then carefully pull that little leg out of the side of that shell and then they fill the excess space with this plasticine clay uh that wears away as the duck grows which i that absolutely blew my mind with you having kind of a diver your diver background you know you grew up shooting divers and you know, maybe not king eiders and stuff, but probably, um, you know, a lot of ringneck and canvas back and redhead and bufflehead. Does does any part of you ever want to do something like that little diver banding project, or, or are you mm. you pretty pretty happy with the mostly mallards? Yeah, man. I, I you know I I love to explore, and I mean this research helps me broaden my knowledge for these critters too. I'm no expert in, in any of this stuff. And so I'd love to get, you know, get up and work on some of the prairies and some of the species up there. And, you know, who knows someday in my career, I probably will. I mean, I've been, you know, I've been above the Arctic circle catching white fronts on the breeding ground and snow geese, you know, up on the Arctic tundra. And, and uh, so I've, I've got to experience some of that and it's been really good. We put some backpacks on white fronts a number of years ago and, and uh, so I've, I've gotten to expand out and do some of that, but it all boils down to, you know, research grants and and, uh, and funding and travel opportunities and, and to do that sort of thing. And so, you know, someday in my career, I'd like to explore some of that. But but all those bands you talk about putting on the little guys, you know, I, I, I haven't seen too many of them harvested over the years. But, you know, they're obviously without that, all that, uh, you know, they're just they're too you know the birds are too small to hold those bands on at first and so as their legs grow it starts to break that mold and that stuff falls off and that band you know sort of stays on there you know some of my students that i've had over the years have done some of that and one of them might even have harvested one of those birds at one point that that had uh, one of those types of bands on them and you know but there's a you know in our part of the neck of the woods here there's you know there's uh there's a big huge project going on kind of a region-wide project in all the states in the south except arkansas uh looking at wood duck recruitment um and looking at the impacts of, of nesting boxes and stuff and, and how impactful they are overall in, in helping the population sort of sustain or whatever and whatever those dynamics look like but there's a big project going on right now i know they're putting on these little web tags you know so on the people you know so hunters are always interested and they always look for the metal band but you always you know that just that's the case in point that you also need to look at the webbing of the birds legs and so there sometimes there's a little aluminum band tagged to the you know between the webbing of the of the of the of the toes of the bird and so there's other places where bands are located not just around band around the leg and so also 
y'all, you know, just rub your fingers and and thumbs through the webbing of those birds' feet too, make sure there's not something there. Um, keep track of, but but the data, you know, is essential for us. We, you know, we we're always trying to figure out how to use that data in a more effective way. Um, you know, and a lot of it comes boils down to you know probabilities and statistics and you know what it tells us and then we got to understand some of the uncertainties and the biases in it and all that kind of deal but but the data all in all the data is very informative uh, to our management it's very informative in our understanding of the populations and it only helps us all you know it helps the hunters we're working you know scientists biologists and and policy makers are you know, we are truly all trying to work the best we can for hunters. And that's why waterfowl hunting is so successful is because sort of the funding mechanism that funds waterfowl, the sport, right? I mean, we do, you and I and everybody else is probably going to listen to this podcast. I mean, these are the people that's funding this sport. This is why populations, you know, are 35% above overall above long-term average. And, you know, the mechanism's not there for other, some other hunting sports, right? And so, that's why quail populations are like they are because the funding mechanism really isn't even close to matching what it is for waterfowl. So it's, you know, we just, we got to, it's very successful. Um, and so as long as we all continue to work collectively together, you know, by, by doing your part, like reporting your bands that you harvest, you know, that's you doing your part, you know, us putting them on, you reporting the data as accurately as you can gives us, you know, give, we just have to make less assumptions about the data when they're, when we know they're reported accurately. Right. So it's important that, that hunters do the best that Absolutely. they can and, and, uh, and get those submitted. So, and, and we know they are, you know, we know that it's a neat era, actually. It's a really neat age, uh, a time that we're in now because people are so much more inquisitive about what's going on. Right. And like, there's just people are interested in the data. Like when we, Mm -hmm. when we post on our social media, like a data feed, people are like eating it up. They want more of it, you know? And, uh, and so they're, they're just data hungry. I mean, that's the, the age that we're in. People are inquisitive. The social media is allowing us to, to learn more about things that we never really had access before to. So, you know, by, you know, by us providing, you providing us information on the van you harvested, we give feedback on the data and it's, and we're working collectively better as a team. Absolutely. So, Let's talk about the waterfowl mm-hmm. migration and mallards in particular and the changes we have seen in the lower parts of Mississippi flyway over the last few decades. We know weather is the number one driver of the migration with other important variables like food availability, habitat quality, and pressure. It's no secret that we are no longer wintering the number of mallards that we have in the past. And you hear rumblings of the central flyway getting better and better, which can be biased based on who you were talking to. In your opinion, is it simply climate and these other factors as to why we are not seeing the same number of mallards make their way to the deep south? Or does any of your data indicate there's a shifting distribution of mallards to the central flyway similar to the way the specs shifted to arkansas in the late 80s and early 90s yeah that that's a good uh comparison and so first of all let me say i i don't think we have the data to say that there's a shift in mallard distribution because a shift is really a strong right 
it's a strong word. I mean, you think about white-fronted geese. Historically, they wintered on Gulf Coastal Texas, uh-huh. down down the coast of, of Mexico, and then into into Louisiana a little bit. Historically, just a core, just a solid, dense core area that they they reproduced. Mm-hmm. Population started to grow in the '90s, uh, pretty good. Reproduction was really good. Uh, the population uh, started to increase to the point. You know, at the same time that we see a bunch of urban sprawl around the Houston, Galveston, Texas area, we see degradation of, of wetlands are getting poor condition. We get more storms off the coast that are bringing salt water into freshwater marshes, changing the plant communities. We see uh, drought in Texas that, that now all of a sudden the rice farmers don't have the water that they need to flood the rice fields Mm -hmm. and so now they got to plant different crops and so the rice goes away so those all those combinations really drove a shift like a hard line shift in the distribution of white fronts like they're they're you know looking at home range estimates and stuff like that they're literally gone from that area now that's that's what i call a shift okay now there's there's no way the distribution is it is dynamic. They we talked earlier. They got to adapt yes. to changes, and so I think I just don't think they're as concentrated in the in in Lower Arkansas as they were, you know, twenty years ago. Uh-huh. Right? Super concentrated, uh, and it's a lot of factors. One is yeah, the the environment is allowing these birds, or the climate, excuse me, is allowing these birds sometimes to not migrate. Maybe they don't have to use the energy now. They can stay up there. Hunting season goes out a little bit earlier up north and down here. So once the hunting season's gone, why should I come down here and get shot at in somewhere where the highest concentration of waterfowl hunters in the world? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's got that impact. And so I don't think that there's a shift. I think it's, it, it, is it a broadening? Is it a, you know, is it a, is, you know, you take the, you know, you take the pie and push in the middle, and it just kind of expands out on the edges. Are we seeing that? Mm-hmm. Probably. I mean, I think I'm probably seeing that with my band data now. But, but in terms of a shift where they're sort of leaving, the core area is still here where it always has been. Um, but I'm just going to tell you, uh, you know, technology is has a, is having a huge impact on waterfowl movements, local movements. Because I can promise you there's high concentrations of mallards in Arkansas in areas that don't, that have areas to rest and to get away from hunters. They just, they are. I see them. Mm-hmm. I know where they're at. I mean, there's huge concentrations of birds. They're not, they're not as big as they once were. We know that. The aerial survey data tells us that. But there's still large concentrations of birds. But bird movements, I think, their behaviors, their daily movement behaviors are changed because of technology mm-hmm. i mean we got you know everybody down here wants to complain about the prairies and how their their flapper decoys up there is killing all the ducks and now we don't have them and we got to shut down the you know we got to shut down the the flapper but they ain't they're not gonna they're not gonna call out how loud their damn mud motors are flying through the woods right. at four o'clock in the morning I can promise you those ducks know that disturbance is there. Mm-hmm. All right. You got mud motors. You got all this tr- uh, transportation in and out every day at the same time, every friggin' 60 days a week, a year, you know, same place. Those birds know that noise is there. 
you know, you got your local birds, you need those migrating birds to come to harvest because you're not going to shoot the smart ones that know your boat's been going in there every day. That's right. just the way it is, you know, and we just we just got so much advancement in technology and equipment and gear and, you know, uh, navigation equipment on, on how to yes, hunt birds without satellite. even, I mean, we yeah. know where to hunt, birds we know where to to hunt birds now without even going out in the scout birds, you right. know. In college, we didn't hunt birds until we had them scouted, knew where they were going to be. Now, you look at an aerial map, and you got all this fancy modeling stuff that says, "Oh yeah, you need to, you know, you need got to get evaluate these maps and say, oh yeah, the, well the turkeys are going to move down through here, and this is where they're going to be.' And you know, all that stuff is is impacting the behaviors of these birds and not moving as much. In that, in that, excuse me, I'm sorry. And that is transmitter data that I have it all over my computer right now showing all that stuff. And that we get birds banded or marked with transmitters in areas of high concentration hunting areas. Their daily movements are surprisingly low. The the places that can manage their birds uh, and and allow the birds opportunity for rest are going to be successful all year. So people call me and they, and they want me to look at their timber. And I, you know, I go, I think, you know, you can do this and that. And we talk about some things that they can do to improve. And so what, why do you want to improve your timber? Well, I want consistent duck hunting. I said, well, you know, you got to manage your birds. Yes. You got to manage your habitat, but you got to manage your birds as well. And so, you know, there's clubs, I know, I mean, there's places that don't hunt on Mondays and Tuesdays and, uh, is there is two days of a sanctuary or rest area enough to manage your birds? I don't know. I don't have the evidence of that, but they're at least trying something. They're taking some responsibility and saying, I know my hunting efforts probably impacting these birds. So I'm going to back off a minute. You know, everybody says, Oh, we got to reduce the hunting season to 45 days, but I promise you next year, they're going to be in the woods 60 days. I said, why don't you reduce your hunting season by 45 days? You don't need the policy to come down your throat and say, now it's 45 days. If you've got the control, if you've got a place that you're managing your own birds, why don't you figure out, uh, you know, some ways that potentially could help manage those birds. And so part of that, you know, the part of it, in my opinion, is, is habitat. And so I start looking at some of these transmitter locations uh, of birds around some areas that have a lot of sanctuary. I'm wanting to see how much sanctuary they need. How much are they using? Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you look at a lot of places have, you know, there's rest area associated with a lot of federal refuges. There's rest area associated with state areas, with private land. They all have rest areas. But what are those rest areas? some bean field that's been flooded up that they lease from the farmer next door, right? Or it's a moist soil field in some cases or some other type of open field, okay? But I just looked at my transmitter data today. I'm working on, you know, just evaluating some of the information. 60, almost 60%, it was about 57% of the points of some some of these birds are in the woods. So if you're hunting 100% of the woods, right? And these birds need to spend 50% of their time in the sinking woods. And we got a hunter in the woods all the time. We're keeping these birds out of preferred habitats. It's going to have some impact on their populations. Mm-hmm. It just is. Yeah. You know, or it's going to have some impact on their behavior. And so they, you know, they're using 57% of their time. They're spending it in the woods. Um, 
you know, where our hunters are. And so I know the hunters get in and out in the morning and then the birds got it in the afternoon. And maybe that's the case. And maybe, maybe the birds could adapt to that, but that's what they got to do is change. Right. The birds got to change and say, okay, one o'clock. I need to go in the woods now. You said that 57% of the time they're spending the time in the woods. It seems like most people say that waterfowl are not necessarily going to the timber to eat acorns. Well, they certainly do. A lot of people always cite the thermal advantages. Would you say that Mm -hmm. birds are mostly spending their time in the timber? I mean, that's a, that's a significant amount of time, 57% of the time. Would you say that they're spending most of their time in the woods for what reason? Um, well, 50%, well, let me back up one second. 57% of the time is during, that's during the daylight hours, mostly. I mean, I, I didn't break it out like that, but you think about it, the ducks aren't sitting in the woods at night. Right, right, right. Moon. Sometimes right. they do. So, you know, that's a good portion of, the, you know, the day they're really needing the woods. And so what do they need the woods for? You know, historically, they need it for a lot of things. They need it for safety. You know, if they're not, they're, they're not, they're not wide open to eagles and peregrine falcons and whatever, you know, whatever other hawks are chasing them in the fields, right? They're, uh, you know, thermal cover is obviously one. That's, you know, that's true. They, they need it for that. You know, they need it for, uh, you know, for the safety. They need it for food. Everybody says, oh, they don't need ducks, don't need acorns. I never shot a duck with acorn. That's because he sat on the open field all night. And he came into your woods and he shot him at six in the morning. You didn't give him a chance to eat right. an acorn. Okay? <laughs> and so they do eat acorns historically. Uh, historically, they ate a lot more acorns. Why? Probably because our our woods are in a lot poorer condition now. Mm-hmm. There are not as many acorns in the woods now as there used to be when the timber was a lot healthier. And so our management of the timber is for, is reduced food availability uh, in the woods. And so do they absolutely... You know, how dependent are they on acorns? I can't answer that. I'd like to be able to answer that. I'd like to tell you how essential, you know, the acorn is to their overall diet. Because just like you and I, we need our fruits and vegetables and I got to have my cheese. You know, we got to have all of our food components for various minerals and amino acids and proteins and lipids and all this sort of thing. Same thing with the birds. So they're probably getting some things from the acorn that they can't get from other food sources. Um, you know, but acorn availability has probably declined, you know, sometimes the water's too deep, uh, in these situations because I'm, I'm starting to go down a rant here. So, so all those things in answering your question, I think they're all important. Uh, I think there's some old data on sort of time budgets are important, right? Like how much time in the woods do they spend doing this activity versus this activity versus this activity, you know, there's some old data on that that's just sort of observation with binoculars sitting and watching them. Uh-huh. Um, but there's new technology now in, in, in transmitters. Uh, and, and I think we can get at how much time they're spending at least feeding in these wetlands with some of the information that these transmitters can give us. But <clears throat> um, so anyway, yeah, I mean, I, you know, the woods is important, just like the open fields are important for various times. You know, just like the scrub shrub thickets are important, you know, sometimes, you know, they just, you know, they go to, they don't go to the same restaurant every day, just like you and I don't. I'm sure a lot of people are curious. Do you do much 
waterfowl hunting? Do you do you even get much free time to do waterfowl hunting these days during the fall and winter? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I go hunt a lot. I'm gonna just tell you the last two or three years, I has probably been a little bit less. Uh, last year, cause COVID, uh, I, I just didn't hunt all that much uh, this last season. Um, uh, in the last two years or so, I'm just gonna tell you, I've I've got myself busy. I have more projects at the college here going on and, you know, and I'll, I'll just tell you, I, you know, banding ducks, I get just as much from going out banding and catching ducks anymore and doing all this sometimes as I do hunting. I love hunting. That's what, what I grew up doing. And that's why I'm in the career I'm in now. Hunting is, I love it. I, and I go out with my students and, you know, I got that kind of relationship with them. So, so I enjoy hunting last couple of years. I just, I've, I've taken on, maybe a couple too many projects. And so I prioritized and backed off to, you know, keep my head above water and keep all my students on pace for graduating on time. And, and, uh, so yes, I, I do. I hunt, I, I hunt a good bit. And I hunt a lot of, uh, uh, um, you know, and, uh, because that's where I, you know, I grew up hunting public and I, you know, I'm, I'm the public land hunter, uh, you know, because of hunting pressure. I, I mean, I'm seeing, I see what the transmitters do in areas that have high hunting pressure. And, you know, we, we literally are hunting strategy, not our hunting strategy, our, our, our hunting activities uh, are as changing behaviors of birds and it's making them harder to hunt. I mean, they really do. They, you know, they move a lot more in the, in the late afternoon, evening and, and uh so it's you know it's just a challenge moving forward on things that are happening but um wouldn't want to do anything else the question i'm sure a lot of people would like to know is have you ever personally shot a bird that was banded by your program no not my program huh has any of your students nope. ever yes a couple of them two of them actually uh two of my students that i know have shot one of our birds uh ethan massey in fact, both of the students that shot my uh, band of ours from our program, both of them now work for Ducks Unlimited. Is that right? um, uh, Ethan is in South uh, Carolina right now, and he he shot one two years. I think it was two years after he banned in it. Uh, you know, he shot it on private. I think it was a private land, but it was a different land of, of, than where it was banded on. And uh, And I know Jeremy Ballard also. And Jeremy Ballard's now at Delta National in uh, Mississippi. Very cool. Let's talk um, specs for a minute. What, a, a question many waterfowlers have in the lower Mississippi Flyway, uh, particularly our specs, they're, they're coming down earlier than ever, regardless of the changes. They're staying through the winter. And from my understanding, these geese are they're obligated migrants. Specs are, from what I understand, basically big pansies that bug out at the first sign of cold weather they head to warmer climates to stay and focus on uh flooded and dry ag lands which we certainly have in abundance and the populations are through the roof would that be pretty accurate because i know a lot of people say well our mallards they're not coming down you know but we're getting specks we're getting snows we're getting pintails are those birds no matter what come October, November, they're coming no matter what. Yep. 
Yep, absolutely. That that's just their strategy, man. That's their life strategy. They're 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 gonna migrate. They don't care about the weather, you know. So maybe that's our saving grace here. They don't care about the weather. So we should all we should always be able to shoot white fronts and and pintails and and teal. And so yeah, it seems like a lot of people have turned yeah. to yeah. a lot of these uh, guys that are you know once were big duck hunters. They've turned into big spec hunters and probably for good reason and you know it's crazy to me that obviously everything u.s fish and wildlife service does it's based off of um you know the hunter numbers and surveys hip data and all that but it was just crazy because i was out in oregon and you could kill specs we were uh, hunting spring specs in oregon and you could kill 10 and the spec populations are good but over here in Arkansas, you know, you can only kill two a day a person, which is they were making fun because I think we shot maybe like 30 or something. And it, it was a pretty good day. But they're like, hey, Arkansas, that's a 15 man. So that was a great, mm-hmm. you know, they they give they were giving us a hard time because they'll see these guys that, that have 20 people in their party and they'll shoot 40 specs and they're like oh we shot a 20 man and these guys are like oh cool you shot a 20 man that's a four man here you know so (laughs) uh, that was one thing i thought was pretty wild about oregon is that you could shoot them so stinking late and i know it's all based off of it's all regional and but Mm -hmm. you know part of me wants to be like man i wish we could bump our uh, spec numbers up a little bit because they're so good here but yeah uh, yeah yeah, I mean, in the flyways, I was uh, I, I sat in on some of the meetings at the flyway council. I, I sit in on a lot of the meetings at the flyway council. I'm not a member. I think as a researcher, to me, if if I'm listening in on the conversations and stuff that the flyway has, then I then I know what research questions they have, and I can try to help answer them. So that so me just being a listening ear at those flyway meetings helps me to to make sure that my research is somewhat is relevant to the, to the questions that are, that are important to making decisions. And so I'm, a, I've been a part of those and, and what it boils down to is, you know, uh, is hunting hunter density and success here. I mean, we can, you know, we know if you shoot a lot of specs, if we, if we bump it up to six birds, how many spec hunters are we going to have next year? A bunch. Right. And so what they boil, what it really boiled down to is harvest rate. The flyway, council thought that they could consider you know as long as we're shooting harvest rate i believe excuse, uh, i believe the number is six percent but if the harvest rate is six percent or below that we could sustain the population at the level that it's at mm-hmm. without having a huge impact on the, on the overall population if we're harvesting only six percent of the birds okay so experimentally in what year was that 2015 they increased the limit that to that we moved it to a liberal season right Mm -hmm. and said you know that year it was three specs Mm -hmm. the first year of the increase was three specs in arkansas okay and they they bumped it up to three and all of a sudden now we got a bunch more hunters out there now it might be worth buying some decoys and they hunt them and they realize you don't need snow goose spreads to kill you know to kill your specs you kill a few you know you got to or four dozen speckle decoys and you can have a nice hunt over them so so as long as they they really set it uh in terms of in terms of harvest rate mm-hmm. saying let's do an experiment for five years we're going to increase the number of days or the number of birds in a bag limit and allow folks to to, to harvest a few more birds we want to increase the opportunity for hunters if the opportunity is there sure 
So that's what they did. They said, we're going to monitor this with five, for five years. And if harvest rate goes over 6%, we got to back off because they don't really know how the population is going to respond if we start right. killing a bunch more out of it. So that was, that was their sort of mechanism for watching and, and monitoring that we don't harvest too many. And all of a sudden we got a nosedive in the population. And, uh, and I don't think that occurred. I think it, it stayed pretty steady. I think population or harvest rates were pretty, pretty consistent with what they thought they were going to have. And they were comfortable with the rate of harvest that we were having. And so I believe it stayed, stayed in that liberal framework. Now here in Arkansas, I think this last year, uh, they did a survey of the waterfowl hunters and asked, you know, would you rather more days or more birds in your bag? And apparently the survey, you know, said that, you know, people preferred more hunting days for specs. So they, they backed it down to two geese, but they also gave you more hunting days of field. So that was the sort of trade-off that the state had an option for. The feds basically said, said, here's your option. A or B, you pick what you want, and the state picked what they wanted. So that's where we're at with that. But it's all monitored, and guess guess what data helps drive that? Band data. Harvest rates is all coming from band data. And so that's just that's the way it is. So the importance comes back again to the importance of banding data and how it drives our decisions uh, and, and, and how it, it, we better understand population dynamics and stuff like that in these in these in these birds and so banding data now is really driving you know harvest uh harvest uh bag limits and season structures if you're listening to this and you don't report your data or you you don't want to do that if if you if you care about the sport if you care about the longevity of the sport making sure we're getting this thing right these people are putting a lot of work in we're all doing the best we can to ensure future populations for many many generations to come please report your band data it's not that hard to do it's very very critical that we do this uh it's a joint effort between everybody in the waterfowl community we're all trying to just make this thing better than what we found it and i encourage anybody listening please it's very very easy it's simple and it's it's cool it's it's cool information to have this data helps us know what we need to do moving forward to keep this thing going. So I think, what is it? Yeah. Reportyourbands.gov, something like that. It says yeah. it right there on the band. It's pretty, yeah. pretty yeah. stinky. Thank easy. you for that. Thank you for that plug. Yes. Reportband.gov. That's this, you know, Severe Banding Laboratory. It's been going for, I don't, I don't even know what year it started a long time. Uh, and it's all, it's all the data that goes in collectively and all the researchers use it. Other researchers use our band data that's being recovered and that's okay. That's what we're here doing together. And so let me just put a note in there that, uh, this last hunting season, I think there was an issue with the iPhones, not being able to something with the way the, the bird banding lab, www.reportband.gov, how it functioned on an iPhone and it was yes. given a lot of issues and people had trouble reporting their bands. And uh, I actually got an email a couple of weeks, maybe a week ago or so that they had resolved that issue. So if you're one that tried to report on an iPhone and it wouldn't let you do it and you got frustrated and walked away, give it another try if you would, um, because I think they should have gotten that issue fixed. Definitely. Yeah, that was certainly an issue. I, I had one that I was having trouble with and a few other people, uh, 
no mm -hmm. had some issues as well i had to go to a desktop computer so i'm glad to hear that those got resolved for those of you that may not have seen it yet dr osborne he is going to be given a seminar at the dive bomb squad fest this summer on june 12th followed by a little q a session so don't miss out on your opportunity to come meet dr doug in person you can ask him any questions related to waterfowl science that you may have Doc, do you know what you're going to focus your seminar on or are you just gonna just kind of wing it yeah i'll uh, i'd like to have and, and i need to talk to you about the the logistics of what'll be there but i'd like to be able to provide some graphics and in yeah. images and, and animations Definitely. uh and and demonstrate some of these migration patterns and things we're seeing and so uh, I guess the, the seminar probably was focused around, you know, what we've been learning of migration and behaviors and whatever. But I, but I'm open to, to suggestions. So awesome. I'm not sure if you can take suggestions somehow from no, man. The I think you just do, it, and what do what they, you do, man. Because <laughs> this stuff that we've been talking about on here has just been absolutely mm -hmm. freaking awesome. So mm -hmm. I say you, you do what you do. We'll touch base and whatever you need as far as getting getting the graphics, getting them up there. We'll do mm -hmm. what we need to do to, to get that taken yeah. care of. So we'll touch base beyond yep. this and get that figured out. But man, I say all this stuff, you, you do what you do because being the Mississippi flyway and being in St. Louis, all of your research and all this stuff you're talking about is going to, is going to hit, hit yeah. home with this group of people that we're going to have there. So yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said, I grew up hunting right up the river from there, right? And I, and I did my, my graduate school in Carbondale, not far from St. Louis there. So the country's familiar to me and, and the people are familiar to me. And so, so, so I just, I hope I could talk their language and, uh, and I like to share some of the things that we talked about today again with some visuals and demonstrate how Absolutely, our data is showing yeah. this sorts of things and, um you know and, and uh, i i really look forward to it uh i look forward to coming up there in june and uh, for that so thank you for the invite yeah man absolutely we're excited to have you speak at the event i know a lot of people are really looking forward to it once we released that you would be speaking at the seminar i had several folks reach out and express how pumped up they were about it one of our guys forrest carpenter works for us he's so excited he, he's ready to meet you and ask you some questions he's like man if you want he can just just have him sit up there and talk all day i'll be there like a little kid sitting indian style with my hands on my cheeks so he's he's really really excited about it we appreciate no, you agreeing to come what kind of beer do you like man we'll make sure we got some of that there for you uh, the darker the better all right no, no hop <laughs> we can make that happen we can make that happen well man i uh I don't want to take up any more of your time. You've, uh, you've been awesome. This has been absolutely great. I'm going to have to, I've still got like a ton more questions that I want to ask you that I think people would love to know some answers to. So I think we're going to have to have a part two and I'm going to yeah, go back and, uh, and uh, touch on some more things as well. But I, I thank you a ton for joining me today. And I uh, look forward to seeing you again in June. Yes, sir, man. It was, I enjoyed it. Good conversation. And, uh, yeah, holler if you want to do it again and, and take care. We'll see you soon. Okay, doc. Thanks, man. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that was awesome. Lots of good research-based information in there. Really glad Dr. Doug agreed to come speak at the Squad Fest this summer. I know it's going to be a huge hit. As always, get over to that YouTube channel and hit that subscribe button. We got videos dropping weekly. 
Thank you so much for spending part of your day with me. Really appreciate you all. Until next time, y'all be good. Thank you for listening to the Dive Bomb Squadcast. Thank you.